Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. The mom that came in holding this teeny tiny little baby, and the baby was really four months old, but she was a preemie, and she cannot find the specific, you know, she needs a certain formula. And she couldn't find it anywhere, and the baby had already lost four pounds, and she tried another formula to supplement it, and the baby aspirated. And stories like that is heartbreaking. Debbie Loesch runs a charity called the Angels of Long Island in New York, where she helps families in crisis. Usually it's families who've lost their homes in a fire, or she gives aid to survivors of domestic violence. But last week... Debbie started doing everything she could to help families find formula for their babies. I was listening to the news. I didn't realize um, how bad this uh, shortage was. And I was walking by the shelf where I had formula, and I made a Facebook post. Tomorrow, we're going to set up a table, and we hope we have what your baby drinks. You know, we're trying to get through this crisis together. And I figured I'd share what we had there instead of putting a few out each day on the table and maybe it would help some moms locally. The amount of formula I'm giving out on a daily basis is it's crazy. Loesch says she's been able to keep up with demand thanks to donations that are coming in from across the country. She estimates that she's been able to serve hundreds of moms so far, including that mom of the four-month-old who lost four pounds while trying out an alternative formula. So, you know, she needs this formula, and she's been everywhere. Um, we happen to have a small can, like a sample size can, which those are seven-ounce cans, which will get us through a couple of days. But then what? I have parents calling, and they have, like, a couple of scoops left in their container, and they don't know how they're going to feed their babies. And I hope this ends soon because I, I don't know how much more moms or dads. We have grandparents that are raising their grandchildren. Um, how much more people can take. You know, this is a basic thing. You have to feed a bed of a crying baby. When a baby wakes up and they want to eat, what do you do? Well, with the national out-of-stock rate for infant formula running north of 40 percent, here's what President Biden decided to do yesterday. I'm invoking what they call the Defense Production Act to ensure that manufacturers have the necessary ingredients to make safe, healthy infant formula here at home. The government can now require suppliers that make ingredients used in formula to prioritize the needs of formula manufacturers. It's intended to help with some of the supply chain issues going on right now in making infant formula. Biden also announced the creation of something called Operation Fly Formula. I've directed the Department of Defense and the Department of Health and Human Services to send aircraft planes overseas to pick up infant formula that meets U.S. health and safety standards so we can get it on the store shelves faster. So this is where we are. The richest country in the world has had to invoke a Korean War-era law designed to protect the national defense and also direct the Pentagon to organize what essentially amounts to a peacetime airlift in order to feed American babies. I'd call it absurd, but the absurdity is outflanked by an actual crisis, a crisis of hungry infants. And that crisis itself, in a sense, can be superseded by tragedy. And the tragedy is that the baby formula shortage is both something that was preventable and something that we could have seen coming. Well, Matt Stoller, am I going too far? I mean, is this absurdity outflanked by crisis, superseded by tragedy, and something that actually could have been predictable? Well, you're not going too far. uh, But I would say that we really have this mindset, policymakers and Americans have this mindset that stuff just grows on trees. 
and we don't have to pay attention to production. And we've had this mindset for about 40 years, focus on the stock market, the store shelves just fill themselves automatically. And that's that's era is over. And we, it's not just formula. We have shortages of hundreds of generic pharmaceuticals that children need. We have shortages of... Um, of uh, medical dye for, for CAT scans. These are just a couple of the big ones that people are screaming about right now. But there are shortages that are pervasive across the economy. And this, is a, this has been a, a problem for 15 years, and it accelerated dramatically under, under COVID. And it's about time for policymakers to start paying attention to how our markets function, or in some cases, don't function. Mm. Well, uh, Matt Stoller... You might remember him because he was an important voice in a special series we did not that long ago about the problem of monopolies in America. And Matt is director of research at the American Economic Liberties Project. He recently wrote about the monopoly on infant formula in his newsletter, Big, which covers the politics of market power and antitrust. So, Matt, first of all, let me give you a, a hearty welcome back to On Point here. And I just want to take a moment because... I don't know. We do these shows that that resonate deeply across America, but some of them really resonate profoundly with me. And I just want to say for one second to every parent and caregiver out there right now who is holding a hungry child that is crying because you cannot find enough formula. I am so sorry. And I know how hard it is. Uh, when our second child was born for the first three weeks of his life, almost a month, um, he was hungry a lot. There was no formula shortage at the time. Uh, it's just that we had trouble feeding him. And I really understand how awful, how awful it is to hear the endless cry of a hungry infant. So hopefully this country can get back on track uh, and fix this problem soon. So, Matt, let's break it down, though, because I've been hearing people talk about how uh, this is a perfect storm of, 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 of causes that have led to this sudden, complete sort of vanishing of infant formula on American store shelves. W- what are the parts that have gone into creating this moment? The, f- the first part is that what, there was a, uh, a quality control problem at one of the biggest uh, uh, manufacturing plants for infant formula in the United States, right? Yeah, but I just have to say the the perfect storm thing. I mean, we saw nurses wearing garbage bags at the beginning of the pandemic. Can we just like stop with this? You know, I mean, this is systemic. I mean, yeah. I just want to point that out. Like, how many um, black swans can you have before it's right? Like the it's, it's a perfect flock. storm, or right. it's just the weather. Right. <laughs> um, uh, so, what are the components of this? So, there's a couple of components, uh, but this is basically a monopoly problem. And when you look at shortages in almost every instance. It's usually because you have one or two or three suppliers of some vital good, and oh, one of the factories often they're regulated. Um, they're not they're not taking care of the factory. Then it goes out and uh, or gets sh- shut down, and boom, there's a shortage. And that is what happened here. It's also what underpins the the pharmaceutical shortage. Um, but there are there are basically this is a little more complicated because there are two aspects to the shortage. One is uh, so Abbott Labs which is a $200 billion company and domestic baby formula represents less than 5% of their revenue. So they don't really care that much about this division. And their factory was a mess. They had old equipment. It was dirty. The FDA told them multiple times, you've got to clean this up. Um, This is the factory that eventually the the FDA said, okay, we're shutting this factory down until you clean it up. It took uh, a whistleblower, right? (laughs) Well, it took, I mean, it took a lot, it took more than that. I mean, there was, there was an FDA inspection in September. They said, hey, you guys are wearing dirty shoes in the, in the, you know, sterile rooms that make infant formula. Then a whistleblower said, look, they're falsifying records. They're, um, you know, they're doing all sorts of, you know, they're not looking into consumer complaints when babies get sick. Uh, and then there was another inspection in January and February. And finally, the FDA just sh- shut the factory down. And so that's that's kind of problem one. But over the last four weeks, this is according to the White House and the FDA, there's been more baby formula produced than uh, than there was before the factory shut down because they probably knew this is a big part of the supply and they got the other producers to amp up production. So why do we have a shortage? And that gets to the second problem, which is that there's a distribution bottleneck. The government, because of how the government is essentially the power buyer in this market, mm-hmm. um, it's essentially the Walmart, right, of 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 baby formula. It buys a lot of the baby formula that 
people uh, people need. Oh, uh, roughly half uh, comes through the USDA's Women, Infant, and Children uh, program. And the way that they structure the program is they effectively say, "Give us a better price for formula." And or and every state gets a gets a good price from one of the the two, three, but there's really two formula makers, and uh, and we'll give you a monopoly mm-hmm. in the state. Mm-hmm. And so you have all of these states where there's one formula maker for the entire state, essentially. I mean, there's just no point if you're a retailer like you. Why would you stock any formula but the one that? over half of your customers can buy, right? right. So so what happens is these, these are long-term contracts. And, uh, and so you have shortages in states where Abbott is the dominant or monopoly supplier, whereas in other states, you don't have shortages. So this is a regional problem. It's not necessarily a problem of just not having enough formula. It's a problem of having, you know, some shortage of formula nationally, but mostly having uh, the distribution system set up so that there are there, there's a very brittle distribution system and there are regional problems now. Okay, so we have a problem of market consolidation, a problem of just poor manufacturing standards, at least at one factory, and this distribution bottleneck that's emerged from longstanding federal policy. I want right. We're going to have to take a break in about a minute, and we're going to look at each one of those things in much more detail, Matt. But, but before that, uh, these prongs that have led to this crisis of uh, uh, shortages of infant formula. When you said earlier that uh, uh, these crises are now basically the weather, I mean, how how many other sort of areas or parts of um, the United States' various supply chains do you think um, w- are, are set up for similar catastrophe? I mean, almost all of them. I mean, the cat food right now is you constantly hear complaints about cat food. You hear complaints about, you know, and like random components that go into housing. I mean, it's just kind of pervasive because we've set up our markets to facilitate uh, monopolies. Right. And and in particular, power buyers in the in the in this case, it's the government that's the power buyer. Power buyer is a, a buyer of substantial amounts of the of the market. But in a, lots of other areas, there's a different power buyer. And then they use effectively a similar system, but it's a private system to monopolize the buying. And then that leads to just a few suppliers. And then one of the suppliers goes out, boom, shortage. Okay. Matt Stoller, director of research at the American Economic Liberties Project and author of Goliath, the Hundred Year War between Monopoly Power and Democracy. We're going to talk a lot more about the forces behind the infant formula shortage problem right now and what we can do about it. We'll be back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balance scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balanced scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures, There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, 
and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big inside of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken? wherever you listen to podcasts, and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Today, we're trying to understand all the forces behind the current crisis in the shortage of infant formula across the United States. And Matt Stoller joins us. He's director of research at the American Economic Liberties Project. He writes a newsletter called Big about market power and antitrust in the United States. And let's listen to uh, an On Point listener, Rachel Taylor. She's the mother of a two-month-old in Baltimore, Maryland. And since leaving the hospital, she has relied on a Costco-branded infant formula to supplement her son's diet, um, along with breast milk. And when she first heard about the national formula shortage, she thought she'd be okay because she wasn't using the most popular brands she saw on the shelves, like Enfamil or Similac. But last week, Rachel began to see more and more of the headlines, and she thought, Oh, maybe I should go grab an, an extra few of mine. And I sent my husband and he called and he was like, don't freak out. We can't, this was like last week. He's like, we can't, they don't have it, but we're going to figure it out. And right away I texted and like called friends and family and asked everyone to go to the Costco near them and, and no one could find it. Well, Taylor quickly called her pediatrician who affirmed Uh, that her son doesn't have any special requirements or allergies, so Rachel could feed her son any generic milk-based formula. Which was still hard to find, but I have been able to find, you know, like piece together enough from all different supermarkets, from all different friends. It's not exactly what I wanted or what I would have picked out, but it was certainly like good enough. That's Rachel Taylor in Baltimore, Maryland. And of course, Rachel acknowledges, as do we all, that not everyone is in that situation. Some families need that specialized formula uh, or don't have many other options or the shortage has completely wiped out supplies where they are. So, Matt, um, first of all, help me understand more about how, what is it, three, four companies came to control 90 percent of the infant formula market in the United States? Yeah, that's a it's a good question. First of all, I want to point something out about the the, the listener. Uh, there, there's hoarding that goes on in situations mm-hmm. like this. So when so that actually it's like a bank run. It actually accelerates the problem mm-hmm. um, because there's there's artificially elevated demand because uh, people are afraid. So the 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 what happened with formulas in the 1970s there were a, a, a series of scandals because you know, formula is food for infants, but it's it's kind of, infants have very specific needs. They're the most vulnerable population. And so it's, you know, it, there were scandals where when babies were not getting the nutrition they needed and they had really serious developmental problems. And so in 1980, Congress passed the Infant Formula Act, which regulates formula very aggressively. So it sort of sits between food and medicine in terms of the regulatory schema. And uh, that makes it really hard for uh, new new newcomers to get into the market, right? Because you have to you have to prove like we we are not going to poison babies. And from the perspective of the regulator, the FDA, uh, their their job is not necessarily to make sure there's enough supply. Everybody assumed there'd be enough supply, and it's it's um, it's not to make sure that the the price is low because they don't really care. It's to make sure that the formula that exists doesn't harm babies. Right. And so from their perspective. When, you know, Abbott and, and Nestle and Mead Johnson are making enough formula and it's regulated, like what they don't want to let someone else in because why would they take that risk? Right. There's no there's no point. So they've been uh, the regulators have been holding back new entrants into the market because it's not their mandate to make sure that there's resiliency in the market. And so you've seen this kind of tremendous consolidation. And then in the 1980s and 90s, they designed this WIC program 
uh, or WIC existed before, but they designed the, the specific rebating program because they said, oh, this is a more cost-effective way for states to be able to buy uh, infant... infant yeah. Uh, f- oh, so, sorry. So, so, Sorry, Matt. I just want to jump in here because the, the WIC deserves its own sort of series of of, of questions and uh, investigation between the two of us. But I didn't want right. to leave the uh, the Infant Formula Act of 1980 behind just yet because I mean you've done um, a lot of a lot of writing on this and the details are are fascinating and important. Um, so, for example, um, as you've written that that there that Infant Formula Act of 1980 for good reason because of the the terrible uh, deaths of infants due to bad formula in, in the 70s, um, Congress made these very specific requirements, right, um, to get a product approved. This is, I'm, I'm reading what, what you've uh, researched here. New entrants into the market would need uh, uh, to have protein efficiency studies, thousands of quality tests from raw ingredients all the way to the end product nutritional tests to make sure that it is indeed suitable for infant, uh, infants and approvals for any new supplier brought in to the process. Um, so that takes money, patience, uh, and capital. So high bar to entry already there, but for a good reason, right? But then you write about how um, if you want to make a product and you can even find a contract manufacturer to produce it for you, that in and of itself would be hard. And why? Yeah, so so when you you can own your own factory, or you when you're entering a market, you kind of go to a factory that exists already, and you say, hey, make my product, and here's the formula, or here's the ingredients and everything. Um, and that's the that's the way that almost anybody who gets into a market starts. Uh, and there's, I think there's one, I was told there's one contract manufacturer of formula in the United States. So there is this, there's this um, new firm called Bobby, which is the first firm to come into the formula market in, I don't know, five, uh, five, five, ten years, something like that. Mm. And they started making their formula in Germany because the head of Bobby thought, oh, well, you know, it's a comparable country. And then the FDA said, you can't import formula from Germany. So she then had to go to this contract manufacturer who said, we're not going to accept your uh, business. We don't think you're going to order enough to make it worth our while. And then she worked pretty hard to change their mind and did, and then was eventually took her five years, but was she was able to you know get into the market with tens of millions of dollars, a lot of patience and, uh, and a tremendous sense of professionalism with the FDA. But that's actually the, the the problems here are the hurdles are significant and for good reason. Again, it's not I'm I'm not trying to say that the standards should be lowered, but the um, the mandate of the FDA and I think this is true generally speaking, we do not think about resiliency mm. in supply chains, and so that's really the core here. We need someone who's thinking about resiliency as well as making sure that. Uh, that the baby formula is is not harmful. Yeah, so there has to be a way forward where safety and and resiliency go hand in hand. But you mentioned something there with that that new relatively new entrant into the the infant formula market that they originally wanted to import it from Germany. Right. But there are basically, as far as I understand or can see, uh, formula imports are virtually non-existent in the United States. Well, okay, so. You can import. It's just that the factory abroad has to be, you know, certified by the FDA, right? So, so that you know, Abbott's bringing in stuff from Ireland where they make, you know, it's FDA certified factory. Uh, so it's not that imports are are um, forbidden. It's just that imports from countries in that have re- like comparable health regulations, but n- not, you know, not the same health regulations. That those are. Uh, those are forbidden. And there are some reasons for that that make sense. Like, for example, if there is a recall in Germany or there are problems in, or the storage methods are different in Germany or other, you know, comparable countries, then people here may not hear of it. Right. And right. there. So so you could I mean, I could I could see some reasons for this, but I think generally speaking, it would it would um, that, that that's that's part of the issue. But again, I think the the. the you don't want to get distracted from the real problem at hand, which I think is the distribution issue and the domestic consolidation. Because you see shortages in other areas where you have, you know, one sole source producer in China for something that we that we import or sole source producer 
in the UK or something like that. This is not about the inability to import. This is about a consolidated market. Okay, point taken. Point taken, because w- wherever the consolidation occurs, that's, that is a major source of the problem. But I'm just thinking you know, specifically for the infant formula uh, question, uh, what's, uh, if we're talking about system-wide resilience, what's fascinating to me is that, um, you know, in places... I'm seeing here um, Mary Lovely, who's at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. She told NPR, for example, that there's no reason why it should be so hard to block the importation of nutritional formula for infants from, you know, the European Union or 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 Canada. She she was arguing that those are places that could be very easily inspected by the FDA. We just don't. But then in addition, there are more than 17 percent tariffs on formula that is brought in to the United States. So yet another barrier there. I mean, is that part, is that a problem too? I, I don't, I don't think so. I okay. mean, anybody's, <laughs> the, that listener, you know, they're, they're willing to pay 17% more for the, for the formula. I mean, I think this is really just a distraction from people who don't like domestic production. That's really all, that's what, that's what these arguments are about because the, the real issue here is, is just the consolidation. Like, you know, do you want three domestic manufacturers or do you want three global manufacturers? You end up in the same place or even worse when you're dependent on just a few manufacturers abroad. So I don't, you know, I, I, think, I think it's important to recognize that the issue here is about the fragility of the, um, of the system as a whole. And when we're talking about, you know, formula or something that's vital or, you know, which drugs or medical supplies or kind of anything that kind of is life-sustaining. We need a lot of producers, and we also need them to be near us in case something breaks down, which we just saw. The whole global shipping and air system just kind of broke down. So, like, I don't think we wanted to be dependent on factories abroad. Any, you know, that's even worse than being dependent on factories domestically. We want resiliency, and we want multiple uh, multiple types of 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 production. And that, I think, is kind of the core of it. Mm, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. But I do also, I, I, I don't necessarily think that uh, the multiple types of production all have to be in in the United States. And in order in order for us to have, uh, it is entirely possible to have resiliency. That... And, and they're not they're not in the all in the United States. Like, once again, you know, if you're FDA certified, right, if factory abroad, you can bring you can bring that stuff in. It's not it's, you know, they're it's not all <laughs> it, they're, they're, they're just kind of like misleading a little bit. Like it's, it, you know, and you want the FDA to be inspecting factories, right? I mean, the FDA, we, we import a lot of generic pharmaceuticals from India and China. It is really hard for the FDA to inspect those factories. Um, they have to announce, pre-announce inspections. I mean, you do not, like the FDA has jurisdiction in the United States for a reason, right? It, this is, it is dangerous when you start off offloading health regulations to other countries. And I know people think, oh, Europe is fine. But, you know, it, 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 this can be dangerous. It's a dangerous thing to do. What? Well, um, we don't necessarily want to just like open the doors and let completely unregulated products come in. But I, I think there's a there's a middle ground here. And in fact, the FDA. But we have done that. I mean, that's that's the thing. That's basically what we're, we've done with a lot of our drugs and a lot of our medical supplies. Like it's really bad. And so and I think it's, it's the same people who are saying, oh, why don't we just have more imports? They were saying, oh, let's have more imports in the 90s and in the 2000s. And that led to a really bad situation right now where not only do we have shortages of lots of different stuff because of, you know, sort of problems when in, in China and India and the whole sort of shipping system. But now we have uh, we have shortages domestically because the factories are sort of are shutting down. So it's I, I think this is the, just philosophically what we have to do is focus on production and distribution and resiliency instead of these sort of pie in the sky fantasy ideas that we can just sort of globalize our way out of it. Like we can't. We, we keep seeing this. OK, well, um <laughs> I'll put the FDA behind us here for, in in a second, but just just so that folks know. In fact, in terms of this emergency period right now, one of the things the FDA has done to try to address the the shortage is do exactly what we're talking about. It's relaxing its rules on imported formula uh, to help get more of it in the country. But let's move back to um, you know what you were talking about, Matt, about the distribution problem. Okay, so so first of all. Um, the Women, Infants, and Children program, very, very important program. And as you said, it's 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 the source through which 50% um, of the formula in the United States is purchased. Now, when you described it earlier, saying that the government has basically said 
that, um, you know, in exchange for a lower price, we're going to give, you know, individual formula makers a a local monopoly, essentially. Um, First of all, explain that a little bit better. And then and then. When I first heard you say it, say it, it kind of made sense, right? Like if you're going to um, uh, be able to buy this much formula, you want to expect a good price for it and in exchange um, kind of a lock on the market. But how did we get to that? Right. So it's it's an interesting point. And I do want to talk about Abbott Labs because that company is interesting and in how they think about formula. But in terms of the auction system, it's not that they say give us the lowest sort of wholesale price and then we'll we'll put those in our stores in, you know, in our different states, Maryland, you know, Virginia, Missouri. It's that they say uh, whatever wholesale price, you charge whatever wholesale price you want, but you have to give the state a rebate for WIC uh, participants, right? So then what happens is the manufacturer will give a good rebate to the state and then WIC, and then WIC women who are using WIC to buy formula, they get a, a they get it for low cost or free. But then everybody else, the non-WIC recipients, have to pay a lot more, right? Because it's a rebate, it's a rebate system where they're they're using price discrimination. So they're charging uh, different people, different prices. Um, so it's not just a kind of like a straight auction where they're saying get the lowest price and then that's what goes on the shelves. They're saying um, you, the lowest you're going to bid for lowest price only for you via this rebate system, and then you get you know then we get an exclusive contract not just over WIC but over the whole market. So that's what's going on. Mm, okay, and so then again, I'm I'm seeing this as ugh, a. Um, Another moment of good intentions gone wrong. I mean, how how do we should we understand um, the outcome that it's produced? Well, I mean, it, it <laughs> good intentions. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it this is a, sort of, sort of a very Wall Street friendly way of thinking about pricing. Price discrimination is generally bad. People should all get the same price for the same good or service unless there's some extraordinary circumstance. But we've enabled price discrimination throughout the economy. And they always say, oh, it's this is efficient. And as we're seeing, you know, it's not. But, you know, to understand, you know, for a second here, like these are powerful companies. Abbott Labs, is, again, it's a $200 billion conglomerate. It mostly focuses on, on mergers and acquisitions. They were behind the rapid COVID testing shortage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, er, earlier this year, I mean, again, this is just the weather, right? Um, they are... They, you know, the, the kind of collusiveness between the regulators and market power is consistent. And so what Abbott Labs is doing when we say, oh, the government did this with WIC, I mean, Abbott Labs was in there lobbying. These are companies that are very powerful and they, uh, what they seek to do is maintain their market power. That is the business model here. They are not trying to make baby formula um, more cheaply. They are just trying to maintain their market power and their pricing power. Um, and that's what Abbott does across all of its lines of business. So the stock, you would think in this case, when a major line of business has um, has been you know, deteriorating like this, the stock would be hit. But it's only it's been very minor because this is a m- small part of their business. So we have a business structure, business model problem here as well. Matt Stoller, hang on for a moment. We'll be back in just about a minute and a half and keep talking about you know, the real uh, conglomeration of forces behind the infant formula shortage crisis. And again, what it means about resiliency overall in the United States um, and how to move towards a system where sudden crises like these don't happen anymore. So we'll talk about all that when we come back. This is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the stolen bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts.
This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And again, we are talking about what's really behind the infant formula shortage in the United States. And just want to bring in the voices of a couple more On Point listeners um, who are trying to weather the shortage. This is Michelle Oberholzer-Zimmerman from Detroit, Michigan. She's currently pregnant. She plans to breastfeed her child, but she also acknowledged that it's not always easy. Whereas there's a lot that myself and other pregnant women can do to increase our chances of success, I'm realizing that a lot of women who've already had their kids, they can't change course. They can't go back to breastfeeding if their babies are formula fed. And this is listener Ingrid Antonelli from Annapolis, Maryland. And she says that every time she's had a child, she immediately becomes the target for marketing from companies that want to sell their formula to her. I have had four children. I have nursed them all. And every time my babies are born, I have been bombarded by advertisement, by pressuring, by sending cans of baby food. Uh, There is so much pressure around not nursing. So a couple of on-point listeners there from Maryland and Michigan. And uh, Matt Stoller, I'm not going to let the FDA issue go completely. One more little uh, piece of tape here. This is from FDA Commissioner Robert Califf on Monday, talking to reporters about that diversity in supply question. And here's what he said. The question of whether we need more diversity in terms of the overall supply is one that I think will be much discussed and needs to be considered in light of the levers we have to make that happen. Matt Stoller is with us. He's director of research from the American Economic Liberties Project. And Matt, um, there's something a little bit more uh, that I want to understand in terms of your take on the distribution problem um, regarding how much uh, the government through WIC um, can determine what's uh, being sold regarding um, infant formula. Because when you wrote about this, I'm just going to quote a little bit of what you wrote. You talked about that state rebate system that the states have and that the rebate system distorts the entire market in a state because it's just not worth having alternative formulas on a retail shelf if half the buyers cannot purchase those formulas. As a result, the market tips to the WIC supplier, the supplier chosen by the Women, Infants and Children's program. And that supplier raises prices on non-WIC recipients and does so between 26 to 35 Percent, And then you have a chart about what happened to the baby formula market in the state of California when the WIC contract changed hands. And it basically completely flips around um, from one brand to the other. And you say the whole scheme is done under the guise of welfare. It's essentially a transfer of wealth from the middle class to the poor done by enriching the baby formula cartel. The monopoly-friendly program was designed. Design was peddled by the anti-poverty group, the Center for Budget and Prior, uh, Policy Priorities, which is both on the center left of the political spectrum and aligned with Wall Street. Help me understand what you mean here. Yeah. So this is getting into sort of nitty-gritty, um, ugly truth of politics. There, are, there's, you know, the. So I'm on. I'm kind of a populist on the left, but there is this long-standing. Uh, alliance in from the 1980s onward, where people that wanted to distribute social welfare would align with monopolists or financier-friendly types to uh, uh, enrich the very powerful and then distribute some of that to the poor and stick the middle class with the bill, right? And you saw this with housing. You've seen this with with a, a host of different programs. You see it a lot with um, with col- with higher education financing, um, and then you see it with baby formula. So if you're a non-WIC uh, participant, you're paying inflated prices, and part of that money is going to Abbott and Nestle, uh, Mead Johnson, and part of that money is going to the um, you know WIC recipients, and so that that's the dynamic here, and that like it's a political architecture where you get uh, powerful dominant firms to support social welfare policy. And that's the that's the problem that we have. It's a political problem. Okay, yeah, I was just going to say because it sounds like they that was at the time the only workable solution when the political hurdle was, well, if indeed the government's going to um, help uh, families in need by formula, there's always in the United States this at least political philosophy around the government getting the most bang for its buck. So supporting a monopoly seemed to be the only way to do it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, well, we'll we'll pay off the we'll pay off the local mob boss, and then uh, and then we can distribute, you know, Christmas turkeys or whatever. However, whatever metaphor you want to, we want to use. That's probably an incendiary one, but you get the point. Okay. Right. So, but then, okay. So now, in two thousand twenty-two, then regarding that particular piece of the puzzle, what are the options? Because I don't want to just dismiss the fact that we are talking about families in need. You know, they are uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged if they're relying on WIC, and they need help to get food for their children. So. Is there a better way to accomplish that goal and break down the monopoly power as well? Yeah, I mean, so you're one of the listeners that you talked about, you know, that talked about the um, immense marketing that's going on to try to keep women from breastfeeding. And that's global, too. You know, these these formula makers lobby the WHO to recommend against breastfeeding. Like there's this and that's just political corruption, right? You just it breastfeeding is great, right? You shouldn't shouldn't be doing that. Shouldn't try to get infants on formula if they can do breastfeeding. It's it formula is great, but this is clearly financially motivated. So what you have to do is basically break the power of Abbott Labs. Like we need indictments. That they violated the law, the multiple laws. Someone needs to break out some handcuffs, right? Nancy Pelosi started talking about that. We need to break their power. This company should be much smaller and much simpler. The CEO of this company should not have their formula division be a rounding error on their balance sheet. Like we need, we need focused companies. If the, if babies don't have formula, the CEO of that company should be right on it. And it's like clear that that wasn't the case here. So um, so first of all, we just need to get rid of these giant conglomerates and simplify these companies. Then what you need to do is change the rebating system so that it, there, there are no rebates and essentially it's just an auction system over the wholesale price and the government should just pay more money, right? I mean, this is, this is one, we're talking about $2 billion, right? This is a, a rounding error for the government. And we, we just, we all agree that babies should be fed, right? So just pay the money and it's not, so so it'll cost $3 billion. It's not, it's to pay to have babies fed is worth it, right? We all agree on that. So this is not that hard. It is a political problem. Um, It is, and you know, there are other things we should do. Like we should just say that large buyers, retailers should not be able to only stock one formula or one good that is essential for life preservation. They should be required to buy from at least three sources. Um, maybe 20% uh, has to come from three different sources. Like that, that's a way to actually break these uh, these monopolists across a whole range of, of areas. So you just need much more active management of market structures to make sure that there's diversity and resiliency in the in the distribution system writ large. Okay, so WIC spending, though, when you said uh, $2, billion, $2, to, $2 to $3 billion a, a year on, on formula? I think it's $1.9 right now. So uh, I'm saying you could just increase it by 50% and that would be $3 billion. And okay, that, and that's, you know, that's annually just, on, on formula. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, this is so. where <laughs> this is where I, I I cannot stop myself. I'm I'm starting to do this in all in so many shows. Let's like compare that to the 760 billion dollars Congress regularly appropriates to the Defense Department. I mean, I I just want to bring that in because I completely agree with your point that we can actually afford to solve this problem. We just I don't know politically choose. Uh, not to. Now, but focusing on on Abbott a, a little bit more um, as a company, you had said earlier that uh, Abbott Nutrition or, you know, the, the the food and formula part of the company is pretty small, like 5% of, of Abbott overall. Yeah, that's for the domestic. The Internationally, it's about 10%. So the infant Infant nutrition is 10% for the American infant nutrition is about 5%. Okay. Now, because you've written that you also you also think that um, Abbott ought to be forced to break off the nutritional division from the rest of the firm. Why? Well, because somebody running – so the, the CEO gets a bonus based on how the whole company works, right, and not, not one line of business. And they've actually said our business strategy – you can go to their annual reports – is to be diversified. So if any one line of business doesn't do well, it doesn't matter. The investors are protected. And that's bad. What you want is if a line of business isn't doing well, the CEO needs to really focus on that line of business when it's life, you know, life essential stuff. So you don't want these large conglomerates – with a business strategy that it doesn't matter if their businesses fail. You want large, you want focused companies where the CEO 
feels pain if they're not feeding babies. And that's essentially the problem that we have with these business structures. It's the same thing with Nestle. It's the same thing with Mead Johnson, which is owned by a company called Reckitt. Um, th- th- these companies are, are too big. Uh, they are too big to manage. And it's clear that there is, you know, there's an absentee ownership dynamic going on here where the business executives are just not focused on, on, um, on this particular area. They're focused on more mergers. They're focused on medical devices. They're focused on kind of other things, but they're not focused on making sure that the babies they are supposed to feed, that they have monopoly contracts to feed, get the food that they need. Mm, Okay. Um, And you have another long-term big picture suggestion. It's a really big one. You say the FDA needs wholesale reform. Yeah, I mean, we've seen this problem uh, you know, too many times the the rapid COVID testing one and, and Abbott Labs was another example of it. And, you know, I think there's been some arguments that you should break the food and the drug pieces of the FDA apart. So someone is really focused on food and someone is really focused on, on um, medical supplies. But you also need... A um, someone has to be focused. Maybe it's not at the FDA. Maybe it's someone at the Department of Justice or the FTC or something like that. But you need an institutional watchdog for resiliency in these markets, right? And that is just the FT. The FDA is full of of scientists and analysts who think of themselves as really only focused on the science and the price doesn't matter to them, the resiliency doesn't matter to them. In many cases, they actually like monopolies. In many cases, they like high profit margins because they think, oh, well, you know, this will allow the companies to invest more in research, which is nonsense, but that's what they think. We need somebody that doesn't think that way, that institutionally in government, that's going to say, let's make sure that there are there's resilient, competitive, and open markets for these essential goods and services. Mm. I want to just hear specifically, because you've mentioned the, the COVID rapid testing problem and Abbott a couple of times. Just take a minute, though, to explain exactly what happened and and because it revolved around um, some decisions made by an FDA official yeah. and, and also Abbott's own behavior right but but tell take a minute to yeah, explain so, that so so at the beginning of the of the pandemic right there there are a bunch of companies that were trying to make rapid COVID tests, where in in Germany, you can buy them for about a dollar. Here, you can buy them for about $20. There's a couple of reasons, but one of them is the FDA only approved two rapid COVID testers. And there's an official at the FDA named Tim Stenzel, and he's the guy who's in charge of approving these uh, tests. And he only approved two, whereas in Germany, they they approved about 50, including a bunch of American companies. And these tests are not that hard to make. It's essentially like making a pregnancy test over the the counter. And Tim Stenzel uh, had worked at both companies, including Abbott, that uh, whose test that he approved. And then he wrote a paper saying he doesn't think just anybody should be able to uh, to make these tests. He thinks that there should be one or two makers and the government should work with them to essentially produce on scale um, monopoly, you know, monopolize the market because that's the way that he thinks is the most efficient way to get rapid t- COVID tests. And of course, in the U.S., we had shortages of COVID tests. And in Europe, they, you know, they, they didn't. And the, the tests in Europe were better and cheaper. And the ones here are expensive. And it's not that Tim Stenzel was doing something that was corrupt. It's that he legitimately did not think that having a resilient, diverse supply chain made sense. He was opposed to that. So you have this very monopoly-friendly, uh, very, you know, technocratic attitude that is pervasive at the FDA, and we need to figure out how to kind of get some different thinking in there. Okay. Now, I want to note, though, that just yesterday, um, the House overwhelmingly approved bipartisan legislation that does in, it, or begins to do one of the things that you mentioned, Matt. I mean, it will grant the government uh, authority to expand the types of formula that can be purchased um, through WIC. So and that that's got lots of bipartisan support. Almost no no one opposed that. It's it's very likely uh, almost certain to go through. So in a sense, the emergency has at least shed light on that part of the problem here. But in ter- but regarding the bigger overall reforms that you're talking about and, and the ones that would touch, you know, the American economy overall, not just the formula right. market. The thing I wonder is, is it requires a government uh, that that's functionally modernized, right? I mean, I know there's probably a lot of pushback to your idea of essentially breaking up the FDA into like different um, different units, but we're in a place that we are because the the government makes decisions based on what its its own capacity is. So do we just not have a system of governance that's modern enough to deal with the the complexities of what's required to create uh, you know, a resilient economy today? 
I, I'm not. I, I'm not sure it's a modern piece because we have very old laws that that deal with these problems, like the Clayton Act, which is an anti-monopoly rule, antitrust rule passed in 1913, 14, has a provision that just says that exclusive contracts are illegal. And this is a form of an exclusive contract, right? So it's not that we don't have a modern system. It's that we have a philosophy, both in Congress and among sort of enforcers writ large, that monopolization is good. And you know, we're seeing some changes to that philosophy. The, the Trump administration, the Biden administration, are doing some, did some things in the administrative state to say, well, we want more resiliency. We want like less of this kind of middlemen playing games, pricing games. But, um, but hopefully Congress will start to, to actually take on monopolization, sole source contracting, uh, fragility, resiliency in a more fundamental way. I think they will. I think this baby formula crisis has really woken up a lot of people to how fragile our markets are. And, you know, from the other side, you have a lot of people saying, oh, let's just, this is just a trade issue. We just need more imports, which is the same solution they've been peddling since the 1980s. And of course it makes things worse, but hopefully we can, you know, oh, they also want to get rid of all like baby formula standards. They're like, oh, well, if you just allow us to sell adulterated baby formula, then well, there won't be a shortage, right? That's probably like what Abbott, you know, Abbott people might think. But uh, but obviously what we need to do is is really focus on the market structure question here. And I think people in Congress are starting to get it. I think the American public is starting to get it. And I think this stuff is all, that's the thing, this stuff is solvable. And hopefully this will lead us to start addressing it. Well, Matt, um, I know it might have felt like you were screaming into the wind regarding the problem of, monop- of monopolies for a long time, but clearly more people are listening with every passing year. So Matt Stoller, director of research at the American Economic Liberties Project, author of the newsletter Big, and the book Goliath, The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. Matt, thank you so much for coming back to On Point. Thanks for having me, Meghna. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balance scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balance scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.